It is March 2nd, 2022. Steve Palmer here with another Lawyer Talk Roundtable session. Norm, uh, back at the roundtable. Good morning. Good morning. You know, we did that uh, Rob Muse interview a few weeks ago. Terrific. Phenomenal. And, uh, you know, right on the heels of that, you know, I haven't, we haven't teased this, we haven't announced it, but another awesome interview coming this morning, J.D. Vance. Um, and for those who don't know J.D. Vance, Norm, give us a quick backdrop. J.D. Vance is the author of Hillbilly Elegy, book written, it's his memoir, book written about his upbringing and his uh, uh, transition into adulthood, uh, into Yale Law School, after a very difficult, very challenging upbringing by... Uh, many members of his family and uh, a, a child in poverty. Yeah, he, cer- certainly uh, something, uh, anything but traditional, right? He comes the, from the, uh, the hollers of Kentucky, right. uh, moved up, his grandparents moved up. He was born up here, but then spent the summers down in Kentucky. You know, I have a, a very close friend who, who lived that existence too, uh, and, I, and I still go hunt down there uh, in Kentucky with him. And uh, so the book really resonated with me. Uh, and, and, you know, he was brought up in this, in Middletown, Ohio, uh, working class that just really turned uh, sour, you know, yeah. with addiction, with Appalachian, Scots Irish culture, and 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 you say you know anything but traditional, and and that's true for professional class people. He's anything but traditional, you know, in that sense. But that culture, there are so many people who are impoverished in West Virginia, in Appalachia, Ohio, and in Kentucky, that for them, it's a lifestyle that the rest of us, uh, even here in, quote, flyover country, a lot of the rest of us are unaware of this subculture. And J.D.'s book really brings that to the fore. It's it's something like you've had friends, I've had friends uh, come out of those circumstances and uh, it's a remarkable insight into that culture. Yeah, and what's what's interesting to me is that uh, he sort of speaks both languages. He speaks uh, the common language, and then he goes to Yale Law School, where he had to learn the whole new elite language, or the right. you know the fancy talk, as I call it, the fancy lawyer talk. But not only the fancy lawyer talk, like learn how to talk to people who quote summer. You know, meaning yeah. they, like, where do you summer? Well, I go they, like they have summer homes on the East sure. Coast that, right. you know, that, that, that more money than than you and I can even comprehend. And he is he is uh, he can swim in both pools and do it comfortably. And I think from that he's developed a really really foundational ideology on on these political topics. So it, it's not really political to him. He's actually he has thoughts. He has given things a lot of thought. And he has incorporated his background, his upbringing, and what he has seen in both worlds uh, and come to a really, really solid foundational philosophy on government, on society, on America. Yeah, he has. He is a truly a spokesman for uh, family values. Yeah. I would say that's his strongest. Um, if, if you had to, if, if you had to, uh, uh, you know, give a thumbnail sketch of the guy, it's strong family values a pro family point of view. Uh, and now he's, now he's running, he's running. Yeah, for office. He's, he's running. So it, so the book came out in 2016, uh, movie came out in 2020 on Netflix. It's probably still available there for those that, uh, either, uh, read the book or don't, you know, it, it would rather watch the movie. Um, and it's a pretty faithful representation 
of the book. So he's running for the United States Senate seat, one of the two seats uh, that all, each state gets in the United States Senate. He's running for one of those two seats uh, here in Ohio, uh, the seat that's being vacated by uh, Rob Portman, who is retiring. There are approximately, as last I recall, nine uh, or so candidates on the Republican side uh, f- for that seat. The election is May the 3rd, Tuesday, May the 3rd, coming up. Uh, please register to vote uh, and consider voting for J.D. I'm just going to go ahead and reveal that I'm I'm an advocate for him. I'm not going to, you know, uh, futz around. No, no, no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to futz around and, and hide it. It'd be straight and transparent with uh, those who are listening. But uh, I intend to ask him some tough questions and uh, no softballs. Yeah, well, uh, the good news is we don't have to wait much longer. It looks like here he is. He's calling in. So uh, here we go. Here's J.D. Vance. Uh, J.D., good morning. How are you doing today? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Um, you know, I, we, we talked a little bit about what we wanted to ask you, and I know you've got, uh, you know, you're, you're running for office. You've got other stuff going on. You've, you've got a, a popular book, a movie that made as a result of that. But, you know, it, I assume you had a chance to watch this State of the Union address, and uh, it just seems like this country's going in such a crazy place, but it doesn't feel like uh, that's what was portrayed last night. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? And, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think going forward? You know, it, it's funny. I, I didn't even watch the State of the Union address last night because I, I, I knew that it was going to be a joke and it's become such a political parlor game. You know, I, I've seen a lot of the reports and I've seen some clips out of it. And, you know, I, I basically, you know, it, it sounded like a guy who was giving a standard State of the Union speech, sort of laundry list of things that he would like to do without confronting any of the real crises that are actually happening in the country. And, you know, if, if you think about, you know, just take the, the, the present Ukraine situation that, you know, ev- everyone is, is so preoccupied with, you know, if, if, if you think about what America can actually do to increase its own position relative to that of Russia, there's, a, there's really only one answer here because, you know, obviously Ukraine and borders Russia, there's only so much that we can do given our geographic limitation. Uh, the thing that we can do is actually achieve energy independence because, you know, I see that, that, that oil is $110 a barrel. And so long as it goes up and up and up, you're going to empower the Russians in this pretty profound way. Uh, and yet every time someone suggests Biden do something that would promote American energy independence, you know, opening up more drilling, approving certain pipelines in the United States and North America, uh, that's always met with, well, we, we can't do that. And of course, the biggest one is, is really r- rap- rapidly expanding our nuclear capabilities. We don't talk about any of this stuff uh, because those things all don't fit with the green agenda. And I, and I think it just shows that there's a fundamental unseriousness to what the president is focused on right now, where we have all of these problems, we have ways of solving them, but we have a president who chooses rhetoric over real solutions. Yeah, J.D., well said for a guy, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, whose family harkens from coal country, uh, Kentucky, um, you know, the, the, the loss of jobs, uh, the lack of American uh, self-sufficiency. Uh, you speak well on that topic and, and you know of, of what you speak uh, from a personal level and uh, being from, uh, you know, hailing family, hailing from that area, uh, you know how critical uh, those energy jobs are, whether it's oil, coal, natural gas. Um, I would like to ask you the one thing in Biden's speech 
that seemed to resonate with Republicans that sounded somewhat hopeful was uh, uh, in one of your speeches. I remember you saying this was one of your top three agenda items is the border. And uh, of right. course, I, yeah, I think it's a head fake on Biden's part. But, uh, you know, uh, would you speak about your position on the border, what we need to do physically down there, as well as, you know, high tech solutions, please? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think there are a few things that we need to do, and, and we have to sort of think of this in a multi-pronged way. I think the first is just, you know, physical security. I know that the president talked last night about, you know, in, enhancing our technological capacities, you know, drones and surveillance and all that stuff. And, of course, that's good. Uh, but I think the most obvious physical security thing that you can do is finish a, a physical security wall. Um, and that, that's something that we should be trying to do. Uh, unfortunately, you have, you know, large segments of the border wall that was started under President Trump that basically haven't been built or haven't been constructed uh, since Biden uh, since Biden started. And, and I've heard even that it's more expensive to have them just sort of sitting there rusting away than it is to actually put them up. So it's, it's kind of preposterous from both a fiscal and also a border security perspective. I think we also have to realize yeah, the reason the southern border is such a crisis zone is because certain people get rich off of it. And in particular, uh, the Mexican drug cartels, which are, are unfortunately not just doing drug trafficking, they're also doing sex trafficking now. Mm. Uh, they've become very wealthy by the lawlessness of the southern border, which is why I think the Democrats' idea that this is somehow compassionate is kind of ridiculous. It's not compassionate to really anybody who lives either south or north of the border. And so I propose declaring those cartels a terrorist organization and actually using the full force of the U.S. military against them. And I, and I think the third thing that we have to do is, is be mindful of the fact that we can't just welcome everybody in, right? I think we're a generous country. We've always been a generous country, and, and God willing, we always we will be a generous country. Uh, but generosity has to stop somewhere. You know, we can't be generous with all seven billion of the world's citizens. And so, another thing that I've proposed is, you know, what if we made very clear that if you come to the United States illegally, not legally, we come illegally, then you don't get the sort of suite of benefits that come along with citizenship in this country. Because I think it would send the message to a lot of people that, look, if you want to come to the United States. You've got to come through the proper channels. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, switch gears here a little bit. Um, we had um, uh, also spoken, you and I, about uh, the cancel culture uh, off air uh, at an event. And I'd like you to, you know, I know that really fires you up, uh, the whole idea of uh, the public square being denied to conservatives or, or to anybody that just has an alternative view and, you know, used to be organizations like the ACLU would stand up for unpopular speech. But it seems like now, um, you know, it, 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 we have to walk in lockstep with uh, big tech and big corp and Coca-Cola and, you know, all these all these companies that want to shut you down. If you have a difference of opinion, please. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty negative trend in American public life. And I, I think that Republicans in particular have to be really willing to do some drastic things to push this in the other direction. I mean, you know, we, we basically live in a world where, though many of us aren't even aware of it, some might not like to admit it, uh, you know, probably 90% of people consume most of their information uh, through four or five large technology companies. And those technology companies really control the entire infrastructure of the modern Internet. And unfortunately, those technology companies are very politically active and they're all very left-wing. And so you have this weird world where if you don't say things that they want you to say, where if you sort of step outside 
of the narrow constrictions of what they said is permissible speech, uh, you can be banned, you can be kicked off their platforms. And that's true whether you're the president of the United States or just, you know, a middle class Ohio uh, conservative voter, you know, to your point, even a lot of liberals, I think, aren't, aren't happy with the big tech thing because, you know, sometimes even if you're a liberal person, maybe you have a viewpoint that isn't favored by big tech and you want to be able to express it and debate it and argue it. That's sort of one of the fundamental things. You know, the, the flip side of this is, you know, these, these companies, they're often viewed by commentators and politicians, purely private entities, but we know that's really not true, right? So they get certain special government favors, certain privileges from the government. These things are all, they make them more powerful, they make them more profitable, uh, but they also are getting explicit propaganda, excuse me, explicit pressure from the government to do certain censorship. So you've seen Jen Psaki from the White House uh, press room say multiple times that she wants Facebook or Google or Apple or whoever else to engage in more censorship on this or that issue. Mm. It's like, well, the government can't accomplish through the back door of big tech uh, what it can't accomplish through the front door directly, right? Joe Biden couldn't show up to the house and say, you know, say that, you know, COVID mask policy is dumb, right? In the same vein, he shouldn't be able to pressure a large technology company to ban you from their platform for saying the exact same thing. Yeah, JD, this this sort of brings up another question. I think is interesting because uh, you know there's this notion of what the federal government should be able to control and what it shouldn't be able to control, and now you have this situation where big tech is sort of uh, operating as an arm of the government, but a government, but not quite formally. Um, you know, how far do you think the federal government? or even at the local level, uh, how far do you think they can go to try to fix this or try to either break the chain or start operating uh, with a lever going the other direction to prevent uh, big tech from eliminating free speech rights? Yeah, you know, I, I guess I seem to think that this is one of like the fundamental core functions of the federal government. You know, massive, uh, massive national entities, really, you know, multinational entities. I mean, some of these companies are more powerful than than even you know governments in certain countries. Uh, indeed, you know, pretty striking the contrast between the fact that you know January sixth of last year, Donald Trump was the sitting president of the United States, but these technology companies in his own country were kicking him off of their platforms. So I, I tend to think that it is something the federal government has to pay attention to. It's the only entity, you know, in our constitutional structure that has has really the right and the responsibility. And I think there. Are, are a couple of things that we could be doing here. Um, you know, the, the first is, um, you know, common carrier regulations where, you know, going back, you know, hundreds of years, even before the, the, the creation of the constitution in this country, uh, there was this idea that if you owned a railroad or you owned a public road, you know, you couldn't discriminate against people based on, you know, their skin color or their political view, views. You had to sort of be open to everybody so long as they were willing uh, to pay the right price. And uh, I think that, that that's actually a pretty interesting analogy for how to handle Google, Facebook, and so forth, that they, that, that they can't do something to one group that they're not willing to do to another group. They just have to be fair to everybody. Uh, that's actually something, you know, to sort of slightly qualify what I said earlier, that's something that state governments could do. And I've even joined state lawsuits here in Ohio to try to get Google in particular declared a common carrier. And then the second thing, of course, is antitrust, right, where, you know, we have precedent in this, this country going back you know, well over a century, where when certain companies become so powerful that they're able to control the U.S. government itself, you know, think of the U.S. Steel or think of the railroad monopolies, uh, there, is, there is precedent to go in and make those companies smaller, actually break them up into, into subdivisions, uh, which, you know, the economic evidence, I think, 
is is that often the companies end up doing better because those monopolies aren't aren't great efficient companies, uh, but also they have much less political power, which is the most important thing. So I think I think both of those things need to be on the table. Uh, we need to be willing to declare these guys common carriers, and we need to be willing to break them up. Uh, JD, if um, if I can uh, switch to something that's probably very uh, very close to your heart, um, uh, it, the uh, the fentanyl crisis, the drug crisis, and the social safety net uh, that that you think would be the right uh, level or the right mix. Um, it, it, you know, for those who haven't uh, read your book or seen the movie, you know, basically, I don't think it's too uh, off the mark to say, you know, Mama and Papa, you know, basically saved your life because you, your your mother had an addiction uh, issue, um, and you know, working with uh, people in that, uh, you're an addict forever. You're you're always an alcoholic or you're always a drug addict for life. You, it, it's a struggle. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, I know you've done work in this area professionally and, of course, your family. I'm wondering, you know, uh, you're sensitive, obviously, to the deprivation, uh, uh, especially for children, uh, which is, is so, uh, it, it's so dramatic in your, in your book. Um, wh- what, what does a government owe its population uh, that cannot... Um, not the part of the population that doesn't want to work, but the population that is truly helpless. Uh, people who, you know, uh, obviously are, are uh, you know, have a disability uh, or children. How, how big should the largesse be to support people who are truly needy versus, you know, where is the stick to get up off the couch and get a job for those who are, who are able-bodied if you could go into that a little bit yeah sure i mean I, of course one of the great difficulties and complexities of, of modern public policy is where to draw that line and i i guess i tend to think that you know generosity is good but at a certain level and this is true in our personal lives but it's also true in our government policy uh, that generosity can become self-defeating right you, you don't want to be so generous uh, that you don't actually encourage people uh, to make the right decisions you know, is a classic adage, uh, important sometimes to give people fish, but more important to, to actually teach them how to fish. And I think that's, that's, that's true in a lot of areas of public policy. Um, I, I guess that the, the way that I think about drawing this line is that, you know, we should try to have an economy where good job opportunities, good, good pathways are available for those who want them. Uh, and we should have a social safety net that works for the truly needy in our country. Uh, and that's really, that, that, that's kind of how I, how I draw the line. And of course, the details really matter there. Uh, but, you know, with this particular, you asked about the fentanyl issue. Let's just take that as one example, right? So, so one way of looking at the fentanyl crisis is to say, uh, well, you know, people should be able to make their choices. Um, you know, it's, it's completely fine. If somebody wants to be a drug, drug addict and die, that's their own problem. That's their own fault. Um, and then, of course, you know, my, my approach to it is a little bit more, well, you know, we have to accept that people are in some ways formed by the environment in which they grew up. And we shouldn't want children to grow up, you know, where their, their, their moms and dads are dying of heroin overdoses. Uh, and, and we shouldn't want, um, you know, we shouldn't want our, our parents to grow up in a world where their children are surrounded 
by illegal drugs and all, 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 all manner of other problems, right? And so that counsels in favor of, I think, pretty strong enforcement of preventing as much drugs as possible into our community, of securing that southern border that we were talking about earlier, but also has to, having some pretty, some pretty robust enforcement mechanisms to reduce the supply of this stuff. And, you know, I, I guess the, the way that I think about this, and, you know, just to sum this all up, is I've got three young children. I've got a, a four-year-old boy, a two-year-old boy, and, and we had a baby girl about you know eight or nine weeks ago. Congratulations. And I, I tend to think about it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I guess I tend to think that, you know, I, I want a country where it is easier for those kids to become virtuous young people. And it's harder to do that when they're surrounded by drugs. It's harder to do that when their communities don't have good job opportunities. Uh, it's harder to do that uh, when, uh, you know, let's, to just take something that's going on right now uh, when we're letting the, the communist Chinese buy up American farmland and American single-family homes. Uh, so we, we don't just want to write people a check and say, here's a bunch of money, uh, see you next week when you need another check. But I also think we want to make sure that we build a society where our young people are encouraged to become good people. You know, J.D., it seems like there's always this uh, this line that, that- – it gets blurry because the, you know the government, for instance, Norm and I were talking this morning a little bit about uh, the PPP loan program and how so many businesses, you know, just had a windfall because they didn't really need the PPP loan, but they still qualified. And then you had other businesses who decided, well, I'm not going to take it, or uh, maybe I need it, maybe I don't, or maybe they really needed it and got it and it helped them. But it seems like a lot of these government programs. Uh, strike with such a broad stroke that uh, they have as many adverse consequences as they do helpful ones. And, you know, this is, I guess, a little bit back to culture. It's like there seemed to be a time way back when, when when at the local level, the churches, the neighborhoods, the groups at, at, at the very local level would help others. And now the government thinks they can fix everything. And I, and I just want to get your thoughts on um, how to deal with that problem, if there is a way to deal with that problem. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I tend to think that, I mean, one, you're absolutely right, and it is a problem, and it's, of course, a problem that a lot of people want to pretend isn't real. Uh, and, I, and I think it's probably a consequence of any time the government does anything, uh, there are going to be some negative consequences. And, you know, sometimes when the government does something, there will hopefully be some positive consequences as well. And I think that's true, you know, regardless of how big or small the government is, Uh, One of the things I try to remind people of is that the the question of the size of government is obviously a a primarily important point, but it's also there's like some basic function questions, right? We shouldn't just want the government to be big or, in my case, small. Uh, We want the government to actually do what it does effectively and to do it well. And I I think that that that's something that we have to pay a little bit more attention to in our public life is for four years we've been having this big versus small debate. And it's like, you know, well, okay, we all agree that the local government should fix the potholes. Like, I'd like the government to fix the potholes, right? Um, it, it increasingly doesn't do that, right? I, I mean, we have, a, we have a, a federal government where even at its smallest, one of its fundamental tasks was protecting the sovereignty of the country, securing its own border. And yet, uh, you know, we have this massive, massive government that can't even do this basic function well anymore. And so I, I, I guess the, the way that I tend to think about this is we're never going to get outside of a world where sometimes there are unintended consequences of a given government policy. Uh, that means that we should probably be pretty cautious about injecting the government into some of these issues. And, and when we do, like when we have to inject the government into some of these issues, we should be extremely careful about how we do it so that we limit those unintended consequences 
you know, accepting that there's always going to be downsides whenever you act. I mean, that's maybe not a satisfying answer, but I, I think that's, that's basically, you know, to, su- to summarize that, we should try to keep the government out of as much as possible, and we should be super careful when we do inject it into something that we're not being stupid about it. Uh, J.D., uh, if you have time for another question or two. Um, sure. Yeah. It's one, one of the um, things that really struck me in Hillbilly Elegy uh, in the closing part of the book was uh, when you observed that we that you really got to see that there are two worlds. And there might be three or four, but but you got to see at least two of them. You you got to see you know where the rubber meets the road, the retail level, um, lower class, middle class, if you will, income wise is is what I mean by that. Uh, nothing else about class. And then uh, this um, rarefied air at at Yale Law School, and 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 how how the how there are built-in just you know, basically a, a smoother path for people that are in the upper echelons of society. And you got to go to law school with those folks and uh, married a classmate there at Yale and uh, and developed a, a, v- a really beneficial relationship with uh, one of your advisors, professors at Yale that really helped you. And you describe all that in the book. And um I'm wondering, <laughs> I have real problems with the Ivy League, right? I, I, I just I just look at where our government is, uh, institutions like the CIA, uh, institutions like the FBI, institutions like uh, the Department of Defense, and you and you see so many of these egghead Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford people. And I just wonder, you know, you're an Ohio State graduate. Uh, it, I, I, part of what excites me about your candidacy is that you're you're a man of the people, but yet you understand that world uh, of big tech and, and the egghead uh, Ivy League people. Could you talk a little bit uh, about your experience there and, uh, you know, what, what you might find in the Senate when you go to the American House of Lords, so to speak, uh, and what that might be like? I'm I'm really excited about your candidacy, and um, you know uh, it. I I think I think you're going to be so unique in the Senate, if if you don't mind, kind of musing about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it, and, and certainly you know a big part of just who I am is that yeah I came from a working class family, and I spent a lot of my time in the last ten years, um, you know, in sort of um, you know pretty pretty successful world of, of business and you know, Ivy League schools and so forth. And, and I guess, you know, a, a few, just a few lessons that I guess I take away from my life experience. I think one is that a lot of people assume that there's, you know, there's a correlation between uh, education and wisdom. And that's not always true. I think my grandmother, you know, who didn't finish high school was a hell of a lot more wise mm-hmm. than a lot of people that I spent, you know, I spent time with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think two is that, you know, in some ways, like what is the Ivy League, right? If you ask yourself this question, you can give a number of answers. But the way I've always understood it um, is that it's it's this this these you know very nice universities where you're you know if you're a student, you have a great life there. You're sort of guaranteed a good job after you graduate, and their purpose really is to train the next generation of American leaders, right? 
So if you look at the military or you look at politics, you look at business, you see so many people who went to these very elite universities. And yet I think the country has been badly mismanaged, uh, not just in politics, right? In a lot of different ways over the last 30 or 40 years. And so one of the questions I have of just you know, spending time in the Ivy League, you know, made a lot of friends there. Also, I think saw some real pathologies there. Like, are these institutions actually serving their function, right? Are they actually doing the job of preparing American leaders for a very complicated world, or are they just turning out a lot of people who are actually pretty boring and think the same way and have you know, the same sets of thoughts, but aren't actually willing to you know, step outside and challenge some of the received wisdom? Like, that's not what we want out of our leaders, right? We don't want just a bunch of people following the mob. We want a bunch of people actually challenging the mob. And yet the Ivy League, I think, does the exact opposite. So I wonder, frankly, whether they serve much of a good purpose in this country. Um, I would not have said that 10 years ago, by the way, but I, I certainly think that now. Yeah. And then, you know, I, 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 I think, I, I guess the final thing is just, you know, I, I look at our institutions in the way that a lot of my family um, looks at our institutions. I'm in Cincinnati today. You know, obviously, the campaign takes me all across the state. And, you know, today we're, um, you know, we're about 45 minutes from where I grew up. And I got to be honest with you, the, the way that a lot of my family sees their own leaders, which is, look, these people are given titles and they're given positions and they're given a lot of money and they're given a lot of prestige. Like, what do they do with it? Are they actually doing something useful and helpful for our country? Uh, unfortunately, I think the answer for a lot of them is no. So I can go to the Senate and be a good ally for the people that made me who I am, but also just the type of leader that doesn't bend to the mob that doesn't let people beat me down, but actually uh, is actually willing to take a stand on some things. You know, it's it's such a good point, and I guess uh, that that sort of led me to this thought. I think a lot of us feel, JD, that the country in the last year has just gone off on the wrong tracks, going in completely the wrong direction. As I look back, like even just three or four years ago, uh, everybody felt good. You know, jobs were uh, abundant and people were working, and and everybody seemed to be uh, prosperous. And now it feels like. We're just we're going the complete opposite direction, and I hate to be all doom and gloom, and I don't think it is, but maybe just some closing thoughts on how we get it back. What do we need to do? And I know that's a that's a broad question, but uh, it's it, 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 like what's the solution at this point? Well, I, I think there are a lot of things that we have to do. I mean, you know, one, I, I think we have to we have to restore a public square where people are open and willing to disagree with one another. And I think that's you know partially a big tech question. That's partially just a cultural question. I think that our leaders have really been gripped by this weird set of economic views in the past 30 or 40 years. And we have to sort of get back to this like fundamental idea that we, we should want to build things in this country. We, we have to make things in this country and we have to employ Americans in, in order to do it again. Uh, a check is not a solution here. Uh, a check is not a replacement for a good job. And, you know, you can't import all of your stuff from China, uh, make some money and then pass out the money to the losers of, of, of sort of the economy and hope that that works out, right? I mean, the, the whole idea of modern globalization was you're going to have winners and losers, right? You're going to have people who do very well by it. We'll tax them a lot of money and we'll give that money to the people who lose in globalization. Well, that's a terrible, terrible way to run an economy. And I think we have to get back to a little bit more of self-sufficiency in this country, self-sufficiency as a nation, but also with a lot of our workers and, and then I, I think, you know, finally, we've got to accept um, that, that culture really matters, right? And whether children grow up in a home with a mom and a dad, whether they grow up in, in healthy families, whether they grow up in communities that are high crime versus low crime, like these are very fundamentally important questions. 
and just you know basics of public policy that I think our leaders pay a lot of attention to for 200 years. We've got to get back to caring about this stuff, and I think we do. You know, we could slowly start to turn this around. I'm not an idiot. Uh, I'm not a. I'm not Pollyannish at all. I don't think that the country's problems are going to be solved in 10 years. Uh, but I do think that at least a lot of our citizens have woken up to how mismanaged the country has become. And I think, you know, as, as, as the old saying goes, the first step in solving the problem is realizing how bad it is. And I think we're finally at that step where our citizens are ready to take some really positive long-term steps to fix things. Uh, J.D., um, uh, Norm here. I, one of the most insidious uh, things that, that's happened in our culture, and I know you've written and talked about it, uh, is, is the division along uh, gender, along race, along nationality, along uh, religion, even amongst, you know, people who, who don't have a, a, any particular faith, uh, agnostics or atheists or whatever. It seems like there are forces that are trying to resegregate America, forces that represent themselves as advocates for the uh, for the needy or or for people that consider themselves underserved or being told they're underserved and and we're having separate dormitories and we have I don't know what are we up to 55 different genders instead of the original right. two genders it's it's just I I just wonder you know I think Americans crave getting back to some kind of normalcy and you know I feel the tension now uh, that I didn't feel even, you know, during the Reagan administration or I mean, you go back 20, 30 years, I th- it feels like race relations are worse than they were 20, 30 years ago. And I say that on behalf of somebody who's slightly brown, but you, you, you know, I mean, your family, your personal family is, uh, you know, c- comes from different cultures and and it just seems like um there are forces that are trying to drive us apart from each other. And I'm, I'm wondering how, like, what do we need to do as a culture? How, not, not what do I think, you know, what we need to do, but how do we do that? It, you know, how do we hold ourselves up and say, you know, no black, black boys and girls and white boys and girls, whatever those terms even mean, what's black, what's white. But but why don't we all go to the same prom? Why are we having separate proms? Why do we have separate dorms? What? I don't understand what's going on. It's like we've gone backwards. Yeah, I think, look, we've, we've grown up in a world where a lot of people have, have profited from and some have gained power and some have gained money by dividing us against each other. And that's why this is really happening. And I think we have to recognize that you know, most people – uh, do not share community with share a community with somebody who looks slightly different from them and say, well, let's self segregate, uh, let's separate ourselves into victims or oppressors based on skin color. Let's decide that the black children have to go to one uh, one prom or one dormitory and the white children have to go to something else. So I, I think we just have to like basically stop giving money and stop giving prestige and power to the people who have profited from our division. Uh, that's easier said than done in some ways. I mean, if you were to propose, for example, something I proposed on the campaign, uh, which is eliminating um, federal subsidies for critical race theory programs and curricula development, then you get called a racist, right? Which I think is kind of crazy. It's nearly the opposite. Yeah. Uh, I want the opposite, right? I have to stop funding the explicit racism that's being pushed in our schools. But look, uh, it's it's a long fight. It's, it's a problem that I think we've been asleep to. 
because while most of us have been living our lives and thinking about you know ourselves as Americans and not primarily as one race or another, uh, there have been some pretty powerful forces that have been mobilizing in the other direction. We've just got to start pushing back against it. I think now we realize what's going on. Again, it's time to it's time to take that awareness and turn it into real action. Yeah, as a military man, uh, to, just a quick comment. Uh, I'm curious what you think about Ukraine. It seems it seems pretty obvious now that the I don't want to pick on Yale, but it seems now that the you know our Ivy League leaders. Uh, you know, we're just uh, frozen in place. And except for President Trump over the last, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, 10 years as this crisis has evolved, nobody has armed the Ukrainians. In fact, Obama specifically refused to do that. Um, it, so, so we're way late and a dollar short. And I, I don't think you or most people are advocating American troops, um, but you know, you know, be involved in the, in, in the actual fighting. But my goodness, uh, we, when you have a country like Taiwan, Ukraine, uh, you, you know, the, the Baltic states, and they want to maintain their freedom or at least their independence, and they may not be perfect countries, would you not favor at least arming those people so they can defend themselves? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with sending arms to people to defend themselves. I think we have to be careful um, that we don't stumble ourselves into an escalation here. I, I you know, I, I'm a big fan of this guy. I, I'd encourage all of you to see if his video clips have been going around the past couple of, of weeks because he's been so prophetic about this. His name is John Mearsheimer. Um, and, you know, his, his basic argument was that American policy from about 2014 on uh, really almost in, ensured that the Russians and the Ukrainians would have a major war. Um, and that the Americans did this knowing that there was no way that the Ukrainians could defend themselves against Russia, right? It's, next, it's right next door. Uh, there's just no possible way they could do it. And so I, I think that the thing that we, we have to be careful about is further escalating when, you know, it really I think we're at this situation, your point, for the 10 years of, of American policy. And, you know, like Donald Trump, Trump was going to invade Ukraine when Donald Trump was president because he sort of respected the strength of the American presidency, but you know, like there was just no way to prevent, I think, uh, prevent, I think Russia from doing this, uh, starting five weeks ago. Right. Right. And so I, I, I think, I, I think that we sort of got ourselves in a situation where Russia felt like it was definitely going to invade. It felt like the West wasn't going to do anything about it. And really now the way that I think about it is we have to try to deescalate the situation as much as possible, because uh, I, I think that there's no chance now, hopefully I'm wrong. Um, I think there's no chance the Ukrainians can actually win. And so I think that our goal here should be to try to preserve their sovereignty, get the war to end, and make sure that this doesn't become World War III. Because some of the things I've, I've seen some folks throw around here, the idea that we're going to send you know, fighter planes from, from England and Germany to intercept Russian planes, I mean, this starts to look like the beginning of World War III unless we're careful. And so I, I'm a big fan of de-escalation in this situation just because I don't think there's much else that we can do. Okay. Well, J.D., I think we're getting to the point where we're going to run out of time soon. But uh, I wanted to ask sure. if, if sure. people want to learn more about your, your platform and, and what your values are, et cetera, uh, I'm sure you have a campaign website. website. You want to share that with us and we can get it out there. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on all the social medias. Uh, the website for the campaign is jdvance.com. 
And yeah, would would love for people to uh, to follow along with what we're doing and support us if they're able. And I appreciate you guys giving me the time. Hey, I got a bumper sticker on my truck, man. Yeah, and and, and for, for for those who haven't read JD's book, check it out, Hillbilly Elegy. I know Norman, I read it uh, recently, and I read it a, a couple of years ago too. But uh, uh, great stuff, JD. We really, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, and chatting with us this morning. Yeah, God bless you, man. Awesome. All right, all right. God bless you guys. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thanks. Wow, what a what a what a great interview. He he, you know it, what 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 amazes me about JD Vance is he didn't really. He, you can tell he's already thought about all that stuff. And he doesn't have to explore for the politically correct answer, whether you agree or disagree. Like he has his thoughts on it. He has carefully considered his position on all these things such that he has a, a fundamental principle about him. Right. And he can just apply that principle to all these things. Like he's, right. and, and he's thought about stuff individually as well. And so he's not looking for the, 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 the answer that sounds the best. He's just talking. Well, what's, imp- what's impressive to me is when a person puts themselves out there, puts everything on the line. So he served four years in the Marine Corps. Yeah, now he did uh, he did um, uh, community relations uh, during the Iraq War with the Iraqi communities, you know, vis-a-vis the Marines and 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 with the media. But you know, any Marine in a in a theater of war is putting their life on the line. And similarly, in this election, he's put it all on the line. So this is a guy who made his business success in big tech, right? So his backer, um, one of his principal backers, uh, there's, there's two of them, uh, from Silicon Valley in particular, Steve case and, uh, Peter Thiel. And, um, these guys are conservatives and they're very rare in Silicon Valley. They're very rare in big tech. And uh, those guys have, you know, they're still invested, but they've 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 left companies like Facebook and Google and PayPal and and uh, Amazon. Uh, it, it, Peter Thiel resigned from the board of Facebook in order to focus on getting conservative candidates elected. And uh, JD has burned those bridges with big tech. So like Peter Thiel, uh, well, unlike Peter Thiel, who's a billionaire, J.D. can't really go back. Yeah. He, he has made a commitment to stand up for the American people against cancel culture, against critical race theory, uh, for the border, all of these things that big tech, you know, is telling us that uh, are wrong, he's for. And he is... He's put himself on the line. He has. And, and, and it's, it's probably helpful to note that the things he's standing up for, all that laundry list of things that the other side would sort of scoff and scorn at, those are the or things. Or call that, you a racist. Or call you a racist. Those are the things that enable the other voice to be heard. It's not a stamping out of the other voice. It is a, he's, he, he believes in a system that will set up boundaries to enable the free thought and the free flow of ideas. And, right. You know, he's, he's got it's really hard to criticize him too because he's got the backdrop where he lived it. He lived uh, the kind of poverty environment that um, that uh, the, the quote politicians uh, say they can fix. Right. And he's got some insight into what worked, what didn't work. And I, I really appreciated his answer to that question. Like, where do you, like, where do you stop the government intervention and where does, where does that become too much where it backfires? And I, I think his, his ultimate conclusion was a good one. It's like, I, I guess you can never totally fix that. You just have to be aware of it. 
And when you're aware of it, then it won't happen so much because it, then it becomes not just a political agenda to get votes. It becomes a, a project really designed to help. Well, Ohio and Ohio voters, okay, especially Republicans, have been jacked around by rhino got people who turned out to be rhinos. Yeah. Okay. Phony Republicans. We, we thought we were going to get conservative government and, and we, you know, we, we keep electing, you know, uh, whether it's Voinovich or Taft or Kasich or now DeWine, we keep thinking or Portman in the Senate. We keep thinking as Republican voters, as conservative voters, if you're not affiliated with the Republican Party and you're you're just an independent conservative, and we keep thinking if we vote for these people with an R behind their name that we're going to get conservative policies, uh, and we've been cheated. Almost been, worse. Yeah, it's yeah we've been cheated, yeah. and and uh, taxes in Ohio are we're one of the worst tax states, and people are fleeing Ohio and going south. Uh, to, to states where they can shelter their wealth and their income after they retire, and we're losing population. And what I love about J.D. Vance is that if you want to know if a candidate is real, as I said before, when a person burns bridges behind them and ideologically goes forward bravely with you know their life and their and their and there's no i'm not going back there those people are behind me i'm not going to work for them again i'm done with them i'm 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 starting uh i'm i'm advancing theories and advancing policies and positions and programs and my goals are to benefit the average working ohioan uh, and I'm going to prove it to you by cutting off those business ties that made me my money. Sure. He's not doing it as an extension of his business. He's doing it despite his business that's ties. That's right. right. And that's, that's right. Uh, yeah. I think that does say something about his commitment. So That's why people love Trump. Because Trump, Trump, you know, he came from that New York culture where he's mixing in with the liberals and paying off local officials to approve his projects. And he's 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 immersed in that whole yeah. New York culture of graft and corruption. And then he blew it up. And he, he, he the people felt like here's a guy who's basically putting his business interests aside for four years to be our president and likewise jd vance is doing that well and i think even you know trump was somewhat of a necessity right in order to in order like he was a self uh proselytizing necessity uh in order to get elected he had to come in throwing flames right back at the other people absolutely and at the same time i think that was the quality that didn't get him reelected. And, you know, in, but what he did do is he, he exposed the core of the grift of the corruption of the bad government, deep state, you know, cesspool. Right. And when he exposed that, he paved the way for a guy like J.D. Vance, who has actually thought about the ideology, who has actually considered and knows and lived a, a life that uh, can give him some perspective on what he can do when he gets in the government and maybe most important, what he can't do. And, and this is why I think uh, Trump was, uh, he was an anomaly, uh, but he was also a necessity because he has paved the way. He's opened up the road for guys like J.D. Vance oh, yeah. to really come in. These guys who have, who have considered uh, what a true conservative philosophy is and what it isn't, right. what the government can do, what it can't do, and then how he can help. 
and 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 I think uh, he's a genuine guy, no matter what right. he is. He's not right. going to get he's not going to get the flames or the arrows that Trump got because J.D. Vance is not. Uh, he, he he hasn't said horrible, awful things on the record. He hasn't, no. he, you know, he hasn't done all those no. things. And if that's what people didn't like about Trump, they don't have that same. They're not going to have that same ammunition against a guy like J.D. Vance. And J.D. Vance actually has considered thought about and uh, and really believes in the ideology, I think, that will work to turn this country into a direction or push this country in a direction that'll work. And, you know, it, Norm, you, I know you've been involved in some fundraising with JD, and yeah. we certainly encourage everybody else. I was just talking to you about uh, what I intend to do, and, uh, you know, anybody who really supports a true American, somebody who, who wants to push to help everybody, this is the guy. Right, he has love in his heart. I mean, here here's a guy that's uh, open to people of all cultures, and and uh, and and uh, and yet has some backbone. I mean, he is pro life. He is pro Second Amendment. He is pro First Amendment. Your right to gather. Your right to speak. Say your mind. Uh, he is he is pro re rebuilding the military. All of the things that you know here. Your 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 Ohioans uh, would want and expect, and this is this is the real deal. So yep. All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap it up. Another uh, awesome uh, interview session here at the roundtable, and uh, you know we've reached out to some others uh, to to see if they'll join us too, because I, I like where we're going with the show. I like that uh, we're starting to get uh, some influential folks in here who can really help us understand what's going on in the country and maybe what we can do to help it. Uh, now, beyond that, we are going to continue to cover the news. We're going to continue to cover the topics, some important, some less important, some fun, some not so fun, but we do it right here at the roundtable, and you can tune in almost every week to hear that. Uh, I am also, as we did this morning, uh, continuing with my ongoing 99.7 The Blitz saga where I take questions and answers from Randy and Loper's uh, massive nation of Blitz listeners, and I answer their legal questions. And then, uh, of course, we have the Lawyer Talk podcast Q&A. So you didn't get through on The Blitz? Um, send me an email. Go to LawyerTalkPodcast.com. Send me a question. I got a few in the hopper. I've been busy the last couple of weeks because it turns out I do actually have a job at a law firm upstairs. And uh, if you... Along that line, if you do need legal help, you can find me there, OhioLegalDefense.com. And Norm, I should note my own, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just sell out for a second. St. <laughs> Patrick's Day is around the corner. March Madness is almost on us. There's a big <sighs> UFC fight in Columbus. Our own local Matt Brown's going to uh, going to fight. So uh, there's lots of stuff coming. And you know what that means in my line of work that I haven't seen in the last couple of years mm. is trouble. People get in trouble. Uh, somebody asked me last night, boy, you must have been real busy during the shutdown with, uh, you know, all the crime and stuff going on. I was like, no, 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 no. Crime is tied to excess, and that's a good lesson for us. So when people are out having fun, when people are out doing things, when people are out consuming alcohol or just partying, whether you're not consuming at all, that's when trouble tends to find people. And I'm not saying that I want people to get in trouble. I'm saying I don't. I'm also saying that if you do, put this number in your phone right now, 614 614- Two two four six one four two. That way, when you're in the back of a cop car, you're not having to look it up. Or maybe the police officer's running your license. You're thinking, "Uh-oh, this probably isn't going to go too well if I don't have the correct legal advice." That's what I'm here for. And guess what? I've live people answering the phone norm twenty four seven. You will get an answer. You will not get a voicemail. They will wake me up. I go to bed early. I wake up even earlier, and they will wake me up. I will get your questions answered, even if you're on the side of the road and need it fast. We'll get it short up, and then we can regroup the next day. So um, another riveting edition here of Lawyer Talk Roundtable after my self-serving 
uh, completely sell out commercial for myself, uh, but I don't care. It's my podcast. <laughs> so this is Lawyer Talk off the record on the air today with J.D. Vance, at least until now. <laughs>